Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. I'm Jan Weil with Living Word Ministries, filling in for Debbie Blank. In our last broadcast, we studied 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and learned that Paul taught the Thessalonian church a pre-tribulation rapture. False teaching was spreading rampantly, making this church think they had missed the rapture. And the day of the Lord, also known as the seven-year tribulation, had already come upon them. So Paul corrected their confusion and taught them that the day of the Lord would not come unless the apostasy comes first and the Antichrist is revealed. We also learned that the Antichrist cannot be revealed until the restrainer is taken out of the way and what would happen to those left on this earth after that event. But Paul didn't stop there. He also shared with this young church what their mindset and priorities should be while they wait for Jesus' return. We're in the same position as this young Thessalonian church. Now more than ever, we need to know what is yet to come and what our mindset and priorities need to be as we await Jesus' return. I'm Jan Weil, filling in for Debbie Blank. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. In 2011, the May 21st End of the World website claimed that the rapture would definitely happen on May 21st at exactly 5.59 p.m. Christian broadcaster Harold Camping wrote, The Bible has given us absolute proof that the year 2011 is the end of the world during the Day of Judgment. According to Camping, the end of the world would follow the rapture within a few months on October 21st. Camping was so sure he put $300,000 of his and his followers' money where his mouth was, funding 5,000 billboards and sending 27 RVs across the country plastered with his urgent warning. As we predicted at the time, There was no rapture or end of the world any time in 2011. Even though people over the centuries have set dates, quit their jobs, and sold all their belongings to sit and wait for Jesus to come, nothing so far has happened. And the Bible never says to do any of this. Yet the devil uses such things to discredit the rapture and those who believe in it. As we will see on today's program, the Bible is very clear on what we actually should be doing and not doing while we wait for Jesus' promised coming for believers. There's a common saying today among those who don't want to take the time to study end times prophecy. I'm not going to worry about the details. It'll all work out in the end. And while that certainly is true, sometimes people say that, meaning I'm not going to take the time to study scripture on this topic because it's just too time consuming. Unfortunately, sometimes that mindset also translates to kicking back and not working hard obeying the instructions we've been given in God's Word. That's exactly what was happening in the church of Thessalonica. Some in the church had decided to kick back and wait and developed bad habits in their free time. But Paul sends a very clear message of correction for this behavior, along with specific instructions of what they should be doing. As we examine Paul's teaching, What can we take away from this correction and apply to our own lives? Let's finish the last part of 2 Thessalonians 2 and then dig into chapter 3. So starting in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, 
But we should always give thanks for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through the gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Verse 13 says, God has chosen them from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Why were they chosen? They repented and believed in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Once they repented and believed in Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwelled them and began the process of sanctification in them. Therefore, Paul is telling the Thessalonians, be thankful that God knew from the beginning what choice you would make. Because of their choice to repent and trust in Jesus, those Thessalonian believers who lived on this earth 2,000 years ago will see the rapture, not the tribulation, just like those of us who choose to repent of our sins and trust in Jesus today. And it shouldn't surprise us that God knew ahead of time who would choose him. So he chooses those who choose him because he's omniscient and he knows all of our hearts. Verse 14 says, You've been called through the gospel so that you might obtain glory. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus is going to share his glory with those of us who trust in him. We don't deserve it, but because of his great love and grace, we're going to receive it. I can't even imagine what that will be like. Can you? No, we don't. And you know, no one deserves it. And I have friends who um, really hesitate to believe in the rapture because they don't believe that they deserve to be rescued from the wrath that is to come. But none of us even deserves salvation. That's all God's grace. It's all his gift. In verse 15, Paul says, hold to the traditions you have been taught. Note that Paul's not talking about man-made traditions that find their way into churches and then are elevated as if they're doctrine. Paul is speaking specifically of the godly doctrine he taught the Thessalonians. Then looking at verse 16, what do you notice about the tense in the phrase, who has loved us? The subject is our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. But the verb is singular, not plural. Who has loved us rather than who have loved us. This again shows the deity of Jesus. Paul is saying the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father are one. We know this, but it's important to make note of it whenever we see it in Scripture. And I'm so glad you brought up that verb tense because I wouldn't have seen that. So we do see him say God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ at least a couple of times in the Scripture. But that verb tense, that's really interesting. That adds to it. We see that multiple places in Scripture, but I always like to mark it whenever I see it. Now, as we move on to chapter 3, Paul begins his closing remarks to the Thessalonians with some specific instructions of how to live in the light of the truth. Let's look at these first five verses of 2 Thessalonians 3. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, 
that you're doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Have you ever noticed how Paul constantly asked others to pray for him? He knew his success was totally dependent on God, not on his talents or strength. So he needed prayer for God to continue to work through him and strengthen him to fight opposition and share the gospel. The Greek word for pray here means continuous prayer. Paul wasn't asking them to throw up a quick prayer, but to always remember him in their daily prayers. Even this great apostle recognized his need for prayer and did not hesitate to ask for it. Which makes us realize how much we need to pray. If Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, is asking for prayer, then we need to pray for ourselves, pray for others, ask for prayer. That was the point I really took away with also. In Paul's request for prayer, he asked for three things, which also tells me that when we ask others to pray, we need to be specific about our needs. In this case, Paul asked for prayer first, that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly. In this time, many places had not heard the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul told them he wanted to come to them, but Satan hindered them. We have to understand that spiritual warfare was not only alive and well in Paul's time, it's alive and well in our time and increasing because Satan knows his time is getting short. So our efforts to share the gospel will be met with resistance. But we can overcome these spiritual attacks through prayer in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second, Paul asked for prayer that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did with the Thessalonians. How was the word of the Lord glorified with the Thessalonians? How I see the Lord being glorified in the Thessalonians is that their love was increasing, they were being obedient, their faith was increasing, and therefore the apostles were glorified in that and the Lord was glorified in that. And then third, Paul asked for prayer that they would be rescued from perverse and evil men. Paul was asking for protection from enemies of the gospel. As he and his team traveled from city to city, opponents of Christianity tried to frustrate their efforts. Like Paul, if we actively share the gospel, we're going to see opposition too. How often do you ask God to protect you from the evil one? When Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he taught them to ask for protection. Matthew 6, 13, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know what impressed me in reading that Second Thessalonians 3, 1 through 5 passage was the contrast between good and evil. And when it says in verse 3, the Lord is faithful, he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have a contrast between the Lord being faithful and protecting, which is the love of God, and then we have the wrath, essentially, of Satan. So again, we know that they are not in the wrath of God. This is not the tribulation because God is loving them and protecting them, and it's the evil one that's persecuting them. That's such a great point. And we see that we all have that fear. Paul was constantly having to tell us to ask for protection and to realize where we are. Paul taught the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with that temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. 
we can be confident in the Lord's commitment to protect us. We just need to ask for it. Verse 5, Paul prays, Now may the Lord direct your hearts. Paul's giving us an example of how we should pray for others. May the Lord direct their hearts. May the Lord establish them in the faith. May the Lord guard them from Satan. This is how we should be praying for those around us. Next, Paul changes course to deal with matters of church discipline. The false teaching about the day of the Lord, which the Thessalonians had bought into, led to disorderly conduct. So Paul very clearly calls them out on it. In verses 6 through 10, he says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition or teachings which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. There are a couple of things that impressed me just from the initial reading of the text there. First, it says, now we command you. That's strong language. It this sure is. is. Not, not just a suggestion. And it also ends with, we used to give you this order. So going back to an order of if anyone is not willing, then he is not to eat either. So these are commands and orders from Paul. Then the other thing that struck me is this is sort of reminding me of Revelation 2 and 3 when Jesus speaks to the churches. We've just gone through a commendation of the church of Thessalonica. They have been commended in all these wonderful ways. And now we're coming to, okay, but I have this to say to you. So there are commendations and then there are condemnations and warnings that come along. This follows that pattern. I just thought that was interesting. When we see Paul commanding them, it's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not Paul's own idea. He's hearing this from God and giving them as a prophet what God is is telling Paul to tell them. He's not giving them a suggestion here, is he? He's giving them a command in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He already warned them in the previous letter, and they didn't correct their behavior. They ignored it. So this time he's using stronger language. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying it in this way to get their attention and make sure they know it's serious. Who's Paul referring to when he says, keep away from every brother? He's talking about fellow believers in their church who were leading an unruly life. This doesn't mean every regular attender of the church. It doesn't mean every visitor of the church. This doesn't mean every member of their family. Many haven't committed their life to Christ, and I think we mess up on that quite often. Paul's referring to those in our spiritual community who've claimed to repent and believe in Jesus and make him the Lord of their lives, who are leading an unruly life and not according to the teachings of God's word. When people say no, Lord, it means they're acting as if he is not really their Lord. They have to say yes or he's not Lord. 
then we want to know, what does Paul mean by those who lead an unruly life? Those who are lazy, refusing to work and remain idle. This isn't talking about someone who is idle occasionally. This is also not talking about someone who is elderly or physically unable to work. This is talking about able-bodied people within our spiritual community who've proclaimed Jesus as their Lord and are unwilling to contribute. Paul says to keep away from such a brother. What does he mean, keep away? Paul literally means to withdraw fellowship from this person. Don't hang out with them. Avoid them. That sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Well, it really does. It makes me think of the practice of shunning. And you may have heard people talk about that or see it portrayed in movies. And it's extremely harsh. This just says avoid them, don't hang out with them. Why would he say that? Well, Paul had warned them previously, and they ignored it. So once someone is warned but is unwilling to change, the next step is to withdraw fellowship from them and keep away from them. We need to understand the purpose of keeping away from someone who's unruly. The goal is to help those who are disobedient recognize their sin and repent of it. The purpose is never to condemn them. It must be done out of love for them. But it's also done to protect the faithful from following in their sin. In verses 7 and 8, Paul reminds them of the example he set for them. Paul and his associates worked while they were there. They paid for their own food. They did it as an example of how the believers should be working to support their own needs rather than sitting around being idle while depending on others to support them. They did it to disprove the false teachers who accused them of preaching the gospel for personal gain. They were people who were capable of working, but were sitting back and letting others support them. They weren't doing anything to be a productive member of their spiritual community. We're actually wired to work and be productive. Because of that, a person won't feel good about themselves if they're not doing something to contribute and be productive. I'm just thinking of the history of people who have set dates and decided that the rapture was going to be coming, the Lord was going to be coming, and they went ahead and sold everything that they had and sat and waited. They felt that there was no need to work, no need to be productive anymore. Cast the bad light on people who believe in the rapture because they think that those people have that mindset, that they're just escapists and they don't really want to do anything. They just want to wait for the Lord. And that couldn't be further from the truth. That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. Yeah, he's correcting that behavior that we see today. In verse 9, Paul clarifies and says, not because we do not have the right. He's talking about himself, how they were working, and they weren't doing it because they didn't have the right to get support. It was because he wanted to give an example to people. As ministers of the gospel, they had the right to expect those they were ministering to to provide support for them. Scripture actually directs us to support our pastors. 1 Corinthians 9:14. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Galatians 6:6, 6, 6, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Paul chose not to act on this right because he was planning a church and wanted to give the people who were being lazy and, and those who are sitting back today an example to follow. But this phrase in verse 9, not because we do not have the right, is very significant, isn't it? 
yes, because people who are workers in the Lord, people who are pastors and so forth, they deserve to be supported. He's not negating that whatsoever. He's not saying that's wrong. He's actually saying it's right. It's just that he made a choice while he was there to be an example to them. And what's interesting about that is there's a false teaching in our world today that has been gaining ground, I think, for the last 20 years, which says tithing to support God's work of sharing the gospel, that was more of an Old Testament law. That no longer applies to our time today. But we see that contradicted in multiple places in the New Testament. So we see the command in the Old Testament to tithe, to give a tenth, And then we see the examples in the New Testament of people giving offerings to support the work of the ministry. So when Paul started a new church, he supported himself to give them the example of not sitting idle and to counter any accusations that he was preaching to them for financial gain, like many of the traveling philosophers who passed through these towns at this time. There are a group of people that are concerned today that there are pastors who do preach for financial gain. Um, The prosperity philosophy that they preach is shown by their own riches. They have airplanes and jets, personal jets. They have magnificent homes and so forth. There's a line that we need to draw where we're supporting pastors in a life that they need to have so that they continue preaching the gospel. But when you cross over into this prosperity and because you have a lot of things and the pastor especially has a lot of things, it means that God's blessing him more. And that's really not scriptural. And I don't know if people realize this teaching is in here in Second Thessalonians 3 in this tiny little book. It gives us guidance on being productive ourselves as well as supporting our pastors and the kind of support the pastor should get. Now in verse 10, Paul makes an even stronger statement, reminding them of what he had told them when he was with them. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat. This is where we see he's not talking about the elderly or disabled who can't work. He's specifically talking about those who are able-bodied but lazy and unwilling to work. There's a philosophy that we should just give handouts to people, and I think our culture is maybe guilty of handing out things to people who are able-bodied so they don't feel like they need to work. And that's really been destructive to our culture. So I'm reminded of the adage, if you give a man a fish, he eats for a day. But if you teach a man to fish, he eats for a lifetime. So what we want to do is give people a hand up and not necessarily a handout if they're able-bodied. What we're seeing here is that that handout philosophy is totally against Scripture. Let's go on and take a look at verses 11 through 13. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Now we see the real problem Paul is correcting, an undisciplined life means idle and disruptive. When you start giving handouts to an able-bodied person, they're likely going to fill that time with unhealthy habits. Work helps us stay physically, spiritually, and emotionally healthy. Yet we're living in a culture, as you've just said, that seems to be encouraging handouts rather than hard work. So we need to make sure we're following scripture on this. What does Paul mean in verse 11 by acting like busybodies? Busybody in the Greek means 
to bustle about being inquisitive about other people's business. Have you heard the saying, an idle mind is the devil's workshop? Oh, yes. My grandmother and my mother used to say that. There you go. In this specific case, the idle mind was jumping into other people's business. Today, an idle mind might be sitting around addicted to the next breaking news headline, social media, TikTok videos, video games, drugs, or sexual immorality. Then there's the added fear of the addictive nature of electronic devices on our minds, especially on the minds of young children. There are so many temptations waiting to kidnap our minds when we sit idle. Like you mentioned, all those different things, especially the electronic things that anesthetize people's minds and they just kind of sit there. They get addicted to social media or whatever, and they feel like they have a certain amount of control in a world that isn't even the real world. And it's just getting worse. To prevent this destructive behavior, how does Paul instruct them to live according to verse 12? Well, first he says, work in quiet fashion, which means get out of other people's business, limit your time on social media and these devices as much as possible. Isn't it amazing how a letter written almost 2,000 years ago can so perfectly apply to our lives today? And then second, he says, eat their own bread, meaning provide for your own meals. In other words, stop expecting others to provide for you when you're perfectly capable of providing for yourself. At the same time, we don't want to go to the other direction. First Timothy 5, 3 through 16, Paul instructed the church to provide for those who are in true need, those who are not able-bodied. And also a true widow in the church was considered someone who didn't have family that could help them. If you had a family, even though you're a widow, if you had a family that could help you, that's what that family was expected to do. So a true widow was the one that would get the charity from the church. Then Paul shifts to, as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. It's tough to keep working hard when those around you are kicking back doing nothing. So Paul encourages them to keep their eyes on Jesus and glorifying him rather than watching those around them. Next, Paul returns to church discipline in verses 14 and 15. He says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with them so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish as a brother. In verse 14, Paul says, withdraw fellowship from any believer in the church who refuses to obey the commands in this letter. Then he explains why they should withdraw fellowship so that this person will be put to shame. In other words, to help him recognize a sin. Sin separates us from God and from others. And when we pretend it doesn't separate, we do the other party a great disservice. Sin is not okay, in spite of what our culture says. If it was, God wouldn't call it sin. The ultimate goal in church discipline is to encourage repentance, not division. Paul then ends this letter with an encouraging prayer for the Thessalonians. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Paul emphasized the need for peace out of concern for the church and the disciplinary action that needed to be taken. So he's now praying for peace to come through the unity of all members obeying the truth. 
because of the false teachers who were spreading false teaching in Paul's name, he makes a point of including a distinguishing mark by his own hand to authenticate this letter. I pray that you would draw close to Jesus in his word and find truth, comfort, strength, and peace today and in the days to come. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.